Welcome, everybody, to this week's podcast version of our show, New Mexico in Focus, brought to you by New Mexico PBS, KME TV here in Albuquerque. I'm executive producer Kevin McDonald. Thank you very much for tuning in. We have got a great show for you this week. Lots of really interesting topics and a great group of people here to talk about them. On the line, we have line regular Laura Sanchez Reve, an attorney with the firm incorporated also julianne grimm editor of the santa fe reporter tom garrity of the garrity group also a line regular and michael bird one of our favorites public health consultant so they had a lot on their plate this week we started out by talking to them about governor michelle lujan grisham's move to reach out to lawmakers ahead of the session with the survey to find out what their top priorities for the upcoming 30-day session uh, should be which is an interesting one, of course. It's a 30-day session, which means the primary focus is on the budget, but the governor does have the ability to add some other items to the list of things to be considered. She's already indicated she will do that with recreational cannabis as well as the early education or early child development um, permanent fund that she has supported creating as well as her plan for free college tuition. So uh, full docket already, but uh, wanted to get reaction to her decision to send out those surveys. One of the things to pay attention there, too, is an interesting conversation about whether or not responses to those surveys become public record and therefore something that we all are entitled to seeing ahead of time. So interesting stuff there. Also this week, the line panelists look at the... uh, challenge that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham also faces, as most governors do, in terms of supporting oil and gas industry, which right now we know is in a huge boom period down in the Permian Basin in the southeast corner of the state. Uh, Revenues from that would pay for a lot of those things we just talked about with the budget, including the free college tuition plan. Uh, But she's also moving us towards um, renewable energies and away from a dependence on fossil fuels. So how she walks that tightrope is something that we talked a little bit about to, uh, this week as well. Also with the line, we talked about tourism. It was a great year for tourism in New Mexico. $7 billion in spending in the state last year for tourism, which was a record, as I mentioned, up 7%. So we'll talk about what may be behind that and how we continue that growth. Also this week on the show, We talked to some representatives from the Albuquerque Historic Neighborhoods Alliance. They've got some issues, concerns about the new zoning rules that Albuquerque adopted, oh, almost two years ago now, that were designed to be less burdensome in terms of regulations, also to provide some consistency from neighborhood to neighborhood and spur development. But these folks that we talked to this week share concerns about taking local input out of the planning and zoning process, as well as maybe even creating some racial inequities. So just a lot of important topics on the show this week. We hope you enjoy, and be sure to reach out to us on the show with any feedback you have. You can do that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. Just search for New Mexico and Focus. Thanks for listening. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, are Albuquerque's new zoning rules a threat to some of the city's historic neighborhoods? So if we really want to be a city that cares and a city and we're one Albuquerque, I really would like to see us act like one Albuquerque. Plus, Governor Lujan Grisham's tightrope walk between protecting the environment while still supporting the oil and gas industry. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. New Mexico got some good news this week about tourism. Even as some of our ski resorts saw their first snow of the winter season, visitors spent more money in our state in 2018 than ever before. Ahead this week, we'll take a look at what's behind that jump and break down efforts to keep the momentum going. The city of Albuquerque recently changed its strategy for planning and zoning. The goal was to create a more unified approach and one that kept the regulatory burden to a minimum while offering protections and quality assurance for neighborhoods. But some community members claim the new approach is actually a threat to the very makeup of some of the city's most unique and historic neighborhoods. 
Plus, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is endeavoring to do the near impossible, move our state beyond fossil fuels, while also relying on the revenues from the oil and gas industry to fund major statewide projects and initiatives. The line panelists weigh in on how that's going so far. But up first, they look at Lujan Grisham's unique strategy for developing a plan for the upcoming 2020 legislative session. The governor broke with tradition recently by soliciting lawmakers' opinions on what issues and bills should be considered in the 30-day session upcoming. Now, these even-year shorter sessions are primarily designed to develop and finalize a budget, as you know, but the governor does have discretion to add other issues to the docket. Ms. Lujan Grisham has already said she plans to add legalizing cannabis to the agenda, as well as her proposal to offer free tuition to most college students and the creation of a permanent fund for early childhood education. That's a lot. Here to help us place odds on what makes the cut and what doesn't are this week's Line Opinion panelists. All of them have signed up to research this week's topics and offer their informed opinions. So first up, we welcome Line regular and attorney Laura sanchez Reve. Glad you're back here with us, not traveling around the country. And Julianne Grimm's here. She's editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter, joins us this week as well. Also with us, line regular and principal of the Garrity Group, that would be Tom Garrity. And last but certainly not least, our line regular and public health consultant, Michael Byrd, is here. Thank you all for being here at the table. Now, many lawmakers say they have never been asked their opinions before a session, Julianne. And there's lots of ways to, to read into this. What's your initial take about why the governor is asking for solicitations this early? I don't think there's anything wrong mm -hmm. with trying to figure out what people want and what their priorities are. Right. This has certainly happened in an informal way, you know, throughout all of time. Fair here. enough, Absolutely. So um, getting those things written down, um, I'm a little curious as a journalist, are we gonna be able to um, get those records to review them? Is that something that's gonna be available? I think it, based on what we know right now about what's on the forum, we should be able to get a look at those if, if mm -hmm. somebody wants to. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's a good way for the governor to sort of figure out where the big fight would be mm -hmm. or where the consensus is. Um, you know, and I think there's a little, uh, some issues where it's obvious and, and some issues where it might be really helpful to find that out from a few legislators. Right. Interesting point there, Michael. Um, She's moving the clock up a little bit about decision-making. No prob problem, no problem. That's an, it's an interesting tactic when you think about it. Well, mm -hmm. I, I think there's nothing wrong with trying something new. Mm. Um, just because it's never been done before doesn't mean she shouldn't try something. Mm -hmm. And I think people should be open to it. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, I mean, you can always go back to where you were before. That's a good point. So. Do you find that the, the things I mentioned in the opening does it feel to you as too much in the 30-day? Is there a way to parse this down to get priorities sort of figured out? Because uh, that feels like there's a lot of things she wants to try to do in this 30-day, and some of the legislators might not be able to move that quickly. Does she have to make a decision here? I, I, I would think so. I mean, uh, she's clearly, you know, has an activist sort of approach. Mm -hmm. And so, but obviously she wants, she wants to have people on board and make sure they're 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 on they're endorsing her and um, her ideas, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's nice to see that she's willing to have a conversation about what the legislators are mm -hmm. interested in and mm -hmm. want to see move as well. For real, Tom. Um, when you think about it, everyone's going to be on the table if they choose to participate. Mm -hmm. No one can claim to be disenfranchised. No one can claim to be not heard sure. beforehand. You see what I mean? There's an interesting tactic here. So the rural-urban divide, some folks feel in the rural, rural parts feel they don't have the governor's ear. Mm -hmm. Now you can have the governor's ear. Interesting tactic there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, from a strategy perspective, it's mm -hmm. quite fascinating because, you know, if you're a legislator, you know, you put down your ideas. But do you put down all of your ideas for the risk of having them potentially hijacked by the fourth floor mm -hmm. or used against you later on? <laughs> so is it a gift or that is never it a Trojan horse? I don't know. I don't know. But so I, I think it's kind of fun, you know, like yeah. Julianne had mentioned, I, I'd be very interested to see if these would fall under uh, IPRA uh, and if we'd be able to see mm -hmm. who they would be able, you know, mm -hmm. what uh, different uh, legislators are wanting to do and mm -hmm. what, the, what they want to accomplish. Let's cut back to uh, what I asked Michael about. We got cannabis on the table, early childhood on the table. Can she fit all those things in? Oh, well, that's really up to the legislature, but, yeah. you know, she can make the call as big as she wants. I think the big three are going to be pot, pensions, and PRC. Uh, so, you know, those are the big three that I think that she'll want to be able to have addressed during the session. Sure, absolutely. What's your sense of this? Of why, uh, first, the why of the ask, and then what are the, the results or the upshot of doing well, it this way? Uh, just to sort of circle back to the IPRA issue, uh, the legislature has, has definitely not, uh, they're exempt from IPRA. And many yeah, but once they give it to the governor, 
that it becomes mm, a little bit true. of a different game. So, but it depends mm. how they give mm. it to them, to the governor's office. So, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, well, there's, there's let's pick that fight. <laughs> In any event, love it. Love it. <laughs> obviously, I'm more, I'm more political strategist than journalist. <laughs> so. Yeah. Does it work anyway. for you? I mean, everyone's going to be on the table. Uh, I think another angle here is the governor might be trying to assess who wants to who wants to show up basically versus just show right. up and and, and I think blow really, with the wind. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I think it's really smart. I think it's yeah. smart to. Um, have the conversation early. Um, actually, this is, I know a lot of people think this is very early. It's actually not that early because you right. really have to start right. developing these ideas and, um, you know, figuring out who's, you know, who's going to be your sponsor. Mm -hmm. Start and things get filed in December. So you really, mm -hmm. you're talking about a couple of months, not even a couple of months, a month at this point mm -hmm. to really get that stuff down. And mm -hmm. so I think it's smart for her to reach out in a formal way. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that it's been happening for a long time informally. I mean, I, th mm -hmm. I know that, um, Governor Richardson did that through his staff um, and you know relationships that he had with the legislators, but this is definitely much a much more formal way of doing it, and I think it's it's good for her to get, especially with limited time in a 30-day session, right, to determine what kind of issues are out there and That's what right. she can put onto onto the call. Right. Um, I do think I agree with Tom on those three issues. I think that um, among them there, are, uh, you know, I think that some of them probably have more momentum than others, mm -hmm. but those are definitely um, top issues. I mean, I think it's no different though. Than Martinez when she tried to, you know, bring in uh, third grade reading retention and immigrants' driver's licenses into a 30-day session. Good. So Good those were there. out right. there, you know, issues. Right. Um, and I think that the governor's office obviously has all of the, has a lot of the, the power to set the agenda, obviously right. for a 30-day session. So mm -hmm. um, it can be done. Mm -hmm. I think it just depends whether there's enough momentum. Let me throw another uh, issue on the table, red flag laws, Julianne. The, you know, the idea that that's been floating around as a potential 30-day session topic point as well. And I ask under the idea, does, again, a budget session, there's lots to talk about in a budget session. Lots, especially the budget situation we have now. We have all this money flowing in. There's going to be lots of decisions about how to spend it. Can we really accommodate a, a conversation about red flag laws? I mean, the, the conversation that needs to be had, the next conversation about the red flag laws, is a, it's a big one. And yeah. I think, you know, we just saw on July 1st, New Mexico had some new law go into effect about um, people who are seeking orders of protection in the court um, in domestic violence cases. There is now a due process that allows um, the courts to order the seizure of weapons for mm -hmm. people who are accused of domestic violence crimes. And that is new for New Mexico. Mm -hmm. That is something that um, the sheriff's departments and the city police departments and the state police are still really trying to get a handle on how uh, they will handle it, the mechanics of all of that. Um, Santa Fe Reporter just did a story where we were able to get lots of information from Santa Fe County Sheriff about it, mm -hmm. but we've really gotten now conflicting information from the city police department about whether they're even complying with the law or not as it stands. Mm -hmm. So that's all to say that contemplating a 30-day session in which we would again change the gun laws um, and and given the opposition to all of that, I just don't see that that's one that's really, a, mm -hmm. um, you know, likely to, if it does end up um, on the session, I don't see it likely to really go anywhere right. this time around. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I don't think you'd be alone on that. I've heard that from other folks, too. Let me go back to the cannabis situation, Michael. Again, we've had the governor formed a task force to go around the state and get some feedback, law enforcement, citizenry, all that kind of stuff about putting a proposal together. Governor likes it. Looks like she's going to kind of push this thing through. My sense is there's going to be a bit of a discussion about this. This is not exactly a slam dunk. So I ask again, you know, at the risk of the budget being not fully discussed, are we, are we giving up something by talking about these issues during this 30-day session? And can cannabis actually work in this capacity? Well, I think there's a lot of loose ends still yeah. to, in terms of this, the whole proposal and the way that it needs to, get, I mean, I mean, at least from what I see in the paper, there's somebody always bringing up a new, new issue or a new concern. Um, so I, it'll be. It, I, it remains to be seen how what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Yep. Gene, I think Please. it's really smart that they are, though, talking about starting that bill in the Senate this time around. Uh. So we sort of know that the House has this inclination. The House is likely to pass the thing again, right. but the Senate is where it's going to get hung up again. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good for the people of New Mexico. Let's not churn this through the House for the 30-day session only to have it die in the Senate. Right. Let's see how the Senate feels about it this time and then go from there. That's a key um, distinction. Thank you for bringing that in. That actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, just swing into the budget here real quick before a little bit of time we have left here. Um, the idea that 
schools, you might have seen in the paper, schools are now under question about how they're using their money for that they've received as part of the moonshot uh, going on here. Laura, I'll turn to you on this. Um, is that going to be a problematic part of the conversation in this upcoming session, do you seem, do you think? I think it, it will absolutely have to be part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that is a concern um, in terms of being able to utilize that, those additional funds appropriately, right. um, efficiently. And um, the other issue, too, is the Yazi case that's still mm -hmm. ongoing. Um, and, right. and the plaintiffs there filed a motion this week um, dealing with that, asking the judge to you know, reopen this to, um, to basically force the, the government to do something about it, the mm -hmm. state to do something about this. Um, and, and, and really, I think a lot of critics um, and people on the plaintiff side of that case feel that not enough has been done. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there were obviously increases in teacher salaries, which mm -hmm. were, were sorely needed. There was increases in budgets. But did it specifically target the groups that were the plaintiffs in that case, mm -hmm. which are um, at-risk at populations, mm -hmm. um, Native Americans, Hispanic, uh, students with disabilities, very vulnerable populations that really need those additional resources. And so it sounds like even though there was additional funding, mm -hmm. the details of how they actually right. got used right. did right. not get fleshed out, and that needs to be part of the conversation. And we talked about that at this table, as a matter of fact, when that money's, those yes. monies, didn't we, though? Yes, you were we here. Did. Exactly yes, we right. Did. We got about a minute and a half or a little bit less than that on this. Go ahead and pick up on that as well. That, that's going to be impactful in this budget conversation, isn't it? It just seems to me that we took this early shot, now we're sort of backing up a little bit and saying, okay, hang on, we need to get some, some clarity <laughs> here. So. Well, it's clear that uh, given the plaintiffs, and I mean, uh, um, that, that it is an issue. They don't feel like the plan is addressing those populations mm -hmm. adequately. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, it's, it's, not, it's not finished. Mm. Good point. That's all the time we have on that one. But first, but rest assured, we'll be talking more about that as we get closer to the 2020 session. Now, still ahead of the, this week, encouraging economic development here in Albuquerque while still protecting our historic neighborhoods. I don't think anyone is against economic development. All of us have been wanting. It's about our communities um, from Wells Park to Martinez Town to San Jose to South Broadway are seeing the least amount of investment from an infrastructure perspective, right? And we're seeing the least amount of protections. Welcome back to The Line. 2018 was a banner year for tourism here in New Mexico. According to the Tourism Department Secretary, visitors to the Land of Enchantment spent a record $7.1 billion here last year. That's a jump of 7%. But what's behind that increase? Some suggest a new focus on year-round tourist possibilities here in our state and a focus on some of the lesser-known attractions and opportunities. And Tom, that may be all be true. By our, all our accounts, our marquee event, Balloon Fiesta, was also faring pretty okay. How'd you, how'd you guys work out this year? It was a great event. Okay. Uh, you know, we had uh, a lot of great days of flying. Uh, we got blown out on Thursday on some of the events, mm -hmm. uh, some weather impacts, but overall just down slightly. Last year, it was uh, 888,000 people or guest, estimated guest visits. Uh, this wow. year, we were right at 886. Okay. So, uh, you know, not not too much of a drastic difference, but right. uh, but anyway, you know, what the numbers that I think everybody should be really focused on are basically what are the lodging, you know, when uh. the, in city of Albuquerque, Santa Fe, um, what are their lodgers' tax receipts like for the month of October, mm -hmm. uh, and then that then you'll start to see, you know, what were the admissions like in the gates at the different museums mm -hmm. and uh, and such. So, uh, but it was a great event. It's a it's a marquee event for the state and uh, something that gets people out and about around New Mexico. So, from your point of you being connected with balloon when you look over the entire state and our tourism in the bump you see what do you attribute it to is it one thing in your mind's eye or is it just a combination of a lot of things you know or? it's probably a combination of a lot of things you know yeah. uh, finally the industry has something to rally around with new mexico true which right. you know started you know under the martinez administration mm -hmm. uh secretary Scheuer uh, provided very compelling case study to uh economic forum uh where basically she made the case of basically saying you know, tourism is an industry, but it's much larger than tourism. It really has a way to generate economic development on a larger statewide basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of folks in the tourism industry have looked at tourism as saying, oh, that's the first date. And that, that will get them back to the state yes, to hopefully, uh, you know, come and relocate their business. So uh, I, I like the larger vision, but uh, yep. and I like the fact that the secretary is not abandoning a successful New Mexico True program. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm interested, Laura, in your idea about, I hear a lot from uh, counties and other folks out there, 
lot of the tourism focus t tends to be northern New Mexico, a lot of skiing mountains, it makes sense. Santa Fe and Albuquerque, but in southern parts of the state, they don't get a lot of juice when it comes to tourism dollars. Is that a fair assessment? And in, in in second part of that, they want some more control about how mo those monies get spent. Um, I mm -hmm. think that's probably fair. I think yeah. that um, certainly when I travel, people always think of Santa Fe and they think of Taos. Right. I get questions a lot about Santa Fe and Taos, sure. um, Albuquerque, everybody knows about. Mm -hmm. um, but, but very little about southern New Mexico. So I do think that there's um, an issue there mm -hmm. in terms of trying to publicize. I mean, we have, there's great um, areas to visit down there, a lot of mm -hmm. things to do. Um, you know, when I was at the New Mexico Green Chamber of Commerce, we worked a lot on doing, um, doing work around the outdoor recreation economy. Mm -hmm. And so we also, as part of that, worked on the uh, Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks um, mm -hmm. National Monument down there. Mm -hmm. um, and it was right after the uh, Rio Grande del Norte National Monument up, oh, yeah. um, in Taos and, and Rio Riba had been, um, mm -hmm. uh, had been created. So this new one down south uh, created a little bit of a bump, I think, in some outdoor recreation. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it, it, there needs to be, I think, more resources put into it um, at the statewide level. Um, to try to make sure that people understand that, you know, when you're coming up here, uh, when you're coming into New Mexico, take a trip down I-25, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. go check out Las Cruces, go check out the Oregon Mountains. Um, White Sands, I think, is definitely an area that a lot of people um, uh, appreciate and like to, um, to go to. Just it's an amazing area. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a fair assessment. Mm -hmm. I, just, I hope that we can come up with a more statewide mm -hmm. approach to mm -hmm. tourism dollars. Exactly right. Michael, it goes without saying, and this is always tricky to sort of ask and put out there, but our Native American culture, our Native American population is a big part of our tourism here. Do Are Native Americans receiving some of the largesse here from all these tourist dollars? How much of that $7.1 billion is getting in pockets of Native American folks around our state? Well, that, that's, I think I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to see uh, somebody respond to that, that question myself. Um, the, the, you know, the bottom line is historically, if you, if we look, when we look back historically in terms of the railroad and a, a big driver in the past historically has been native culture, native traditions, native festivals, and, and it continues to still uh, be a draw. If you look at Indian Market, when 150,000 uh, tourists come in for that for a two-day mm -hmm. event, uh, many of them international tourists, not just mm -hmm. domestic. Um, and then when we look at the gathering of nations here in Albuquerque, also um, not just a domestic uh, uh, program, but draws international right. participants, uh, largest, largest powwow in, in the Americas. Um, so, so I would hope, I guess my, my, my concern hope would be that in whatever the state is doing or whatever the Chamber of Commerce is doing or whatever these individuals, that there is some conversation going on already and if not, then there needs to be a conversation mm -hmm. with everyone, I think, at the table, be it mm -hmm. somebody from the South, mm -hmm. be it the Hispanic community, be it the Native American community. I think the more people that are on board and, and understand what the objective is and, and, are, and, and that all parties benefit mm -hmm. in some form or fashion, mm -hmm. um, I think will we'll increase the success uh, and, and, and potentially build uh, some infrastructure in all of the communities because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people I think um, um, New Mexico, you know, in, in many ways we talk about the issues of disparities and, and all and many of the negatives But when it comes to culture tradition language culinary New Mexico's got it and and the landscape right. as well And that's we right. need to really uh, focus on that, but make sure that everybody's benefiting. That's right. That's right. You know, Julianne, Michael just anticipated a question I had for you. It's almost like this in lieu of, and that is crime obviously is a big issue that we worry is going out to the rest of the world in our reputation. Crime, crime, crime all the time. But it's not stopping people from coming here and spending money, is it? There's crime everywhere. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I like the way you put that. <laughs> I think it's, you know, wherever you live, you're going to feel the sting or it's going to feel a little close to home. Mm -hmm. um, and we are certainly all feeling the sting of the challenges in Albuquerque. And right. um, people in Santa Fe kind of like to do this, well, we're not them thing, but um, we're going to have a, a story in a couple of weeks here, I think, that will um, enlighten everybody a little bit about some of the crime trends that we're seeing, that crime, the violent crime is going up. 
in Santa Fe as well. So no one of the things I think is noteworthy is. about this discussion is that um, it's not just the tourism department and the New Mexico True campaign that's really responsible for and working for um, visitors and for other kinds of development in our state. So like the new Office of, of Outdoor Recreation it's actually parked in economic development. Mm -hmm. You know, then you've also got the Department of Cultural Affairs, which has not just the state museum system, but all of these historic sites. And there's some of these smaller sites in rural parts of the state that don't get as much sort of love. They're not the bandolier, they're not the balloon right. um, fiesta, but you know, going to Fort Union um, mm. is also really Excellent fun. Example. You know, yeah. catching a ride on the Coombrays and Toltec um, mm. coming up, they're gonna have their big, you know, Santa Claus thing coming. All those I mean, little duck races. There you right. go. Yeah. It's an I international think event. Third actually. weekend in August. Okay. There, there we go. So they all kind of come together it. to they yeah. they build on the edges of these big things that happen. Um, and I think that that's responsible for some of this change mm -hmm. that's been recorded. You know, Julianne makes a good point here, Tom, and that is, uh, you know, it's hard to develop things that are like so general they'll appeal to everyone. It's not how the world works. Uh -huh. If you think about maybe even the Lowrider Museum in Española, mm -hmm. right? It's a really interesting idea. I mean, why not have lots and lots and lots of very targeted little things that every community can ha can highlight? That seems to be an interesting way to go, you know? Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. the successful destinations are authentic destinations. Ah, and, nice. uh, you know, when we when you look at the Lowrider Museum, it's authentic right. to the community. That's right. And it, what a wonderful story to tell because when you actually go out to, you know, anybody who's traveled in or out of, uh, the Albuquerque Sunport has actually had a chance to experience part of the lowrider culture. Right. And, have an uh, exhibit right now. Yeah, right. people are always really taking cool. pictures, selfies yep. with them and stuff. So, uh, yeah, so authentic communications, authentic representations of communities, mm -hmm. uh, and even the quirky. You know, as uh, as Laura mentioned, you know, the Deming Duck Race right. uh, in Roswell, the Roswell UFO <laughs> encounters. You know, yes. Ros ducks aren't the first thing I think of when I think of Deming, but now they are, and aliens definitely not <laughs> well, Roswell. It's me. Well, yeah. <laughs> And Laura, Laura sanchez <laughs> Ray. Uh, I love it. <laughs> well, shopping, you know, one of the breakouts here is shopping and retail had a $1.2 billion hit with this. So we're talking, again, Julianne made the point, too. It's not just about people flying in and going out. This is critical for people that own mom-and-pop stores, right. mm -hmm. restaurants, all that kind of stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing it's when you huge. think about it. I mean, it, yeah. means, it means so much for them to be able to plan year-round when right. you get a bump. That That's then right. helps you, you know, weather those other times that there's there's a downtime. And mm -hmm. so, for any business, small business, if they're able to capitalize on mm -hmm. you know, visitors for the balloon fiesta or other local events that are That's happening, right. I mean, it really makes the difference in terms of making or breaking their business long That's term. That's right. Are we? I haven't skied, Julianne, in like 30 years. I mean, I don't dislike skiing. I just haven't done it. Are, are, are we seeing some sort of rebound in your? Uh, well, last season was spectacular. In okay. Santa Fe. The okay. season before was, you know, the famous you're on the lift and you see more dirt than snow <laughs> under yep. your skis. But last season was wonderful. Right. Um, I'm not really a great um, meteorologist kind of um, <laughs> predictor in that way, but I think certainly people are hoping for another good right. snow season. I mean, we've seen um, Taos Ski Valley made some big investments in the last couple of years and yep. modernizing and you know making things fancy up there so I think people mm -hmm. in northern New Mexico are really hoping for good snow this year. Cool. It's important for our state too, the snow stuff. You can find out much more about the tourism boom on our website NewMexicoInFocus.org and be sure to check in with the show and offer your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube pages of course. Up there right now, you can hear the line panel's reactions to the news that Maggie Toulouse-Oliver is dropping out of the U.S. Senate race and endorsing her opponent, Congressman Ben Ray Lujan. You know, I'm not surprised that she threw her endorsement behind Ben Ray. Um, we're all part of a, a, a group of, of very connected um, people that have been friends for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it, it was a, sort of like breaking up the family when they were running against each other, right. so now we're That's reuniting right. the family. When the city of Albuquerque completely revamped its zoning rules a few years ago, it was praised for getting rid of a complicated system that residents have complained about for years. The new system was supposed to be easier for everyone to understand, more efficient, and conducive to spurring economic development. But Folks who live in the historic neighborhoods that ring the downtown core say they fear the new code will destroy the charm and character they love. And 
The concerns don't end there, as correspondent Gwyneth Dolan learned when she sat down with representatives from the Historic Neighborhoods Alliance. I am here today with a group of folks from the Historic Neighborhood Alliance, Neighborhoods Alliance. Thank you all for being with us. Diana Dorn-Jones, I want to start with you. You're concerned that the city, in trying to simplify some regulations and spur economic development, has moved forward with a new zoning code that isn't fair to people in these historic neighborhoods. Uh, the city says they just want to make things better. How are, do you think they could actually make things worse? They could make things worse. I think it's two issues. One is the city having uh, changing the zoning code in a way that will impact our neighborhoods and probably not the best of ways. But the biggest issue is if the city continues to go down the path of not including the community in these major decisions, like the independent uh, ordinance, uh, the new zoning codes, like the art project, then we're not headed in a good place as our city chooses to grow and to bring young people here, retain young people, and keep the residents in the, in the area that have been in the neighborhood historically. So we're very concerned about just inclusion or lack of it. And, you know, you mentioned things could go badly. One of the uh, elements of the new zoning plan would allow for high-density housing in neighborhoods like the South, Val uh, the South Broadway neighborhood where you live. What would change in your neighborhood if high-density housing, I mean, like, that's apartments, what, if, what would change if that were allowed? Well, it's about home ownership in that, re in that regard and then the responsibility that one takes for one's property. Uh, I use an example. Um, over 25 years ago, the South Broadway neighborhood won National Neighborhood of the Year. And we were addressing crime prevention, actually open-air drug dealing. And we were being pretty successful at it because it was a resident-driven process. At the same time, other neighborhoods, particularly, I would say, the Trumbull La Mesa area, now the International District, they were doing the same thing. And what they found to be very different in terms of outcomes is they had high-density development in their neighborhood. There was a lack of own, a sense of pride of ownership because these units were owned by absentee landlords. Oh. It made a difference when you have landlords, when, when the landlords live in the neighborhood, when people own their property, or they've been longtime renters, for example. So in South Broadway, you have like maybe 50% ownership, 50% rental. It's about the housing stock. It is single family dwelling. There's, there's very little high density units that are over 12 units of, of apartment buildings. So it's easier to have responsible parties working with you as you're trying to address issues of crime and trying to develop your neighborhood. So you're saying in these, you know, that, that the kind of high density uh, you're talking about means people who are in these apartments for not as long as folks who maybe rent houses or bigger apartments. And so they're literally and figuratively less invested in the neighborhood. How, how would that change the character of the place where you grew up? Well, when, you're in, when you live in a place and you have a sense of ownership or a sense of belonging, because I don't really want to stress ownership. It's okay for people to be rental. Mm -hmm. Housing is housing, and so shelter is shelter, and that's important. But if you're living in a 12-story uh, unit or even a six-story unit, where there's uh, no way in which the community, you can come together as a community and build community around that and build neighbors and be connected to your other, to other neighbors, it makes a difference. So it's about the kind of housing one puts in the neighborhood. Our neighborhood has a lot of opportunities and all of our neighborhoods have a lot of opportunities for infill. Mm -hmm. Vacant lots for a single family, smaller duplexes, fourplexes have been that we would like to have developed. I'm not sure that's the idea that we have in our neighbor, that the, the new zoning code has for us. I think it's higher density and um, it's going to make a difference in how we communicate among ourselves and how we organize ourselves as neighborhoods. And I just want to interject real quick. I think it's about who um, who benefits and who doesn't, right? Because if you look at a lot of the affordable housing that they've done recently, the city, um, you know, um, MFA's policy um, for the federal tax credits that a lot of the developers get is based on cost containment. So I interpret that in terms of regular people's language is how many poor people can we squeeze into the smallest amount of space so we can maximize our, prof our profits. So at the end of the day, who's really benefiting? The developers are the ones who are benefiting, right? So, um, and, and if you look at New Mexico and specifically Bernalillo County and the city of Albuquerque, uh, people always talk about the negative socioeconomic indicators, but no one ever talks about our positive socioeconomic 
socioeconomic indicators. For example, um, home ownership, right? Because of the concept of land tenure, we as New Mexicans have high home ownership rates. And that's important when we're talking about asset building and wealth creation, right? So that's some of our concerns with a lot of this affordable housing that really, at the end of the day, if you really talk to people who live in some of those apartments, it really isn't even really affordable for them. Bianca, I was going to ask you, because you live in Wells Park, mm -hmm. and we've seen some of this infill that Diana has been talking about. We've seen a lot of change in that neighborhood in the past 10 years. What do you think is going right with changes in Wells Park recently? So my husband and I, we purchased our home 13 years ago, um, and we were very uh, specific about where we wanted to live in terms of what street, because um, we were going to have kids, which we do. We have two little ones, right? And when we moved into the neighborhood, fortunately, uh, many of our active um, neighbors who've lived there for generations developed the Wells Park and Sawmill Community Sector Development Plan, right? And so that was 20 years ago. And what you see today, what our neighbors had envisioned, what our elders had envisioned within Sawmill and Wells Park is what you see today on Mountain Road. You see the revitalization of economic development of small mom and pop owned businesses, the Golden Crown Panaderia, Cocina Azul, you look at Sawmill, all of that was the vision of our communities coming together and identifying what they wanted. So the sector plans were the op only opportunity for our neighborhoods to really engage of what type of economic development and community development they wanted to see. So that's where you see all the beautiful things that are happening within Wells Park and Sawmill. But unfortunately, when the city decided to write the zoning codes, they said that there was too many sector plans and it was confusing. So we're gonna do with the sector, do away with the sector plans and we're gonna decide which policies and zoning we're gonna incorporate into the IDO. You think they threw out the baby with the bathwater? Yes. <laughs> sector plans happen to be the only resident driven planning document. Yeah. And it so to incorporates it, the people who live so there. So basically, and it when, just... when you eliminate it, you eliminate the voice of the community, yeah. the neighborhoods. Loretta, I wanted to ask you, you're from uh, Martinez Town there on yes. the other side of uh, downtown. You know, we've seen a lot of change along Mountain Road in those areas. And then south of there in the Country Club neighborhood, just over the past few years, all of these new shops and pizza place and you can get beer and, and you know, all this stuff. It has really changed the face of that part of Central Avenue. We haven't seen that much change like that on the east side of downtown. Uh, is What would you like to see in your neighborhood? Is it going to look like Mountain Road? Do you want it to look more like uh, the Country Club neighborhood? What do you want? We want to keep the character of our area, the small single-family dwellings. Uh, we want to, con uh, to continue to support the institutions that are already existing that we've already invested in. We have millions of dollars in our uh, schools, uh, Longfellow, uh, uh, Albuquerque High. We put a lot of money into them, and they're struggling to have, I, I've talked to the principal at Longfellow to keep um, enough children in the schools. And so it's, it's, it's a, so that's what we want to uh, see, that more housing is built. Uh, I participated with Greater Albuquerque Housing Partnership to provide single-family uh, housing at High and Cordero, and the students from UNM looked at the area and um, designed the homes so that they would blend in with the character of the neighborhood. Uh, you'll see that in Edo, they don't blend in with the single-family dwellings that are there. They're out of character. And so we want to make sure they're in character, and we want to make sure that there's families that are living there. A lot of those houses in Edo and heading down towards South Broadway are you know, this Victorian railroad era stuff. But Martinistown has a different character. It's, it's older in many ways, right? How would you describe that area for people who haven't, haven't been there between downtown and the freeway, you know, along Lomas and um, I, it, it, it was, uh, my mom is Martinez, so it's named after her family. So we have sixth generation living there. I own the home where my dad was born in the house. So there's a lot of history there. Um, uh, every year we celebrate the fiesta for San Ignacio. So people come from all over and say, I used to live in Martinez town. This is where I lived and talk about how this was a special place for them. And then this Thursday, we've been celebrating for 13 years, having a trick-or-treat Halloween event. 
So the walk from San Ignacio, which has been an institution, it's already 103 years old, to Second Presbyterian Church that's been there for like, I think, 150, I forget how long they've been there. Um, and so we connect with both churches and have the children do a safe walk. And that started off from 50 years of dealing with flooding that we decided, what are we going to do positive in the neighborhood? And we've continued that tradition. I just want to interject for a minute, too, and I think the, the topic of the discussion, too, is that Martinez Town hasn't even been afforded the chance to kind of envision what they would like to see for economic development, because since the 1950s, the city of Albuquerque has inappropriately zoned them, right? You had this historic community with Asequias running through it, these beautiful family members who were living there, and then the city came in and um, zoned them for industry and light manufacturing, which totally changed and displaced a lot of people, which totally change the dynamic. There's no more sequias there. Um, you see a lot of light manufacturing and industry that's taking over that community. So they've been so busy over the many years fighting the city of Albuquerque in terms of uh, being treated differently based on being a working class community and mostly a Chicano Hispanic community that they haven't even had the time to envision what they would like to see, right? And that's one of the issues with the IDEO and with the comprehensive plan. They haven't had a chance what? to do the, the, the sector development planning right. yeah. that, that they should do. And that, that's a shame because they're the oldest, one of the oldest neighborhoods in this entire state. Robert. They're still waiting for their sector development plan. So I think like to go back to the IDO, the, the zoning codes, like there's a, there's a long history of displacement. We, 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 the Westgate neighborhood is actually a very good example of right. how that happened with urban renewal in the 70s. So in a lot of ways, the new zoning codes are really um, kind of a cycling back, kind of full circle to what that was. And we're really just playing out what we've done historically with, um, with historic neighborhoods uh, with the new zoning codes. And so we have to do better in terms of engaging our communities so that they're driven, that our, our processes and our policies at a city level are driven by our communities in a lot of ways. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate for one minute. You know, there are people who will say, well, if you want to be involved, be involved. You yeah. know, go to the meeting, do the thing. What's, what's wrong with that idea? So I'm glad you asked that question because... Good point. Community engagement, whenever we hear about community engagement, everyone always says it's so difficult. But the truth is, it doesn't have to be. But one of the reasons why we create all these weird artificial barriers. So for instance, whenever we create... Um, ads uh, for public meetings. They usually go out in a small little ad in the back of the newspaper, and who reads newspapers anymore, unfortunately? <laughs> so, I mean, I know I still do too, paper. but they're usually in small little ads with small little print in the back of a paper, and no one's gonna go for that. And so, and oftentimes the language is prohibitive, it's exclusive, and it's a little dull. Um, so I'll use an example. So St. Paul, Minneapolis did this pop-up meeting to get their community involved in a project, uh, and they utilized uh, a, the traditional form where they put a an ad in the back of the paper and asked for three questions for a project. And then they refurbished a popsicle truck and said, we're gonna ask the same three questions and send out a free, you get a free popsicle if you answer those questions. You can guess which one fared better. Well, I'll answer three questions for, for a Paletta any day. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't have to be that difficult. It, you know, and and uh, we mentioned this it, earlier, like you can, you can put ads in your, or, or questions in your property taxes. You can partner with certain agencies to make it a little bit more. If and the city wants to, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. if the city wants to really engage the community and not repeat the mistakes of the past, they've got to take the time to do it. So you either do the work on the front end or you deal with all the stuff that falls out on the back end. So we encourage them early on in the process how to reach out to community. We do organizing in our community, so we kind of know how to reach out. And it can't be that little ad in the back of the paper. Meetings have to be held at a time when people who cannot come have the privilege to come to a meeting at noon or to come to a meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning. They can't do it. And then, and then sometimes meetings held outside of their own area. Uh, no provisions for daycare, for child support, or anything like that. So if we really want to be a city that cares and a city and we're one Albuquerque, I really would like to see us act like one Albuquerque, act like a family, inform each other. Let's, we're not going to agree on everything, 
but that doesn't mean we shouldn't tackle those difficult subjects and try to be the best that we can be at what we do. And I just want to jump in here real quick too because I think it's about racial equity. That's why we're here today, right? Um, because the city owes own data through the development of the comprehensive plan and the new zoning codes, the IDO, the Integrated Development Ordinance. Their own data shows that the participation rates of Hispanics was and Latinos and Chicanos was far below their population rates in the city of Albuquerque, and that could be said of Asian Pacific Islanders, African Americans, and Native Americans. They had an event at the track, uh, community meeting at the Tractor Brewery where there was zero percent participation from Native youth. Now, I don't know of any event that I've ever heard of at the Tractor <laughs> Brewery where there's zero percent Native American participation. So they should have worked yeah. harder. Well, they, well, they should have, I think what they should have done and engaged community leaders like ourselves and others on how to do effective community outreach. And also, since we're talking about zoning codes, which you're dealing with laws, right, and the uses that are allowed on your property or community property, we recommended several things. One, send out notification within the county assessor's bill that we all get twice a year. Two, send out notification in our utilities bill, because not only will you capture homeowners, but you'll also capture renters. Mm -hmm. You do it for the um, summer fest why when and they told us the city told us that it was too expensive to do that we found out later on it would have only cost them nine hundred dollars for them to do that that's how much that ad is in the in the paper so the reality is by them not doing that by not notifying us as as property owners you're perpetuating the history of the United States in terms of manifest destiny and not providing us as Chicanos Mexicanos Native Americans people of color the opportunity to have a say in our land and what the future looks like for our communities well these are institutional practices yeah, that me, we've been pointing out to the city, if we're going to make a change, we have to start somewhere, and we need to start that now. We, we have just a few minutes left on that, and I want to take your point into consideration and, and acknowledge that there's a struggle there between honoring people in these communities and engaging them and respecting them, and this parallel track of trying to um, very quickly demonstrate uh, economic development right. and and what looks like improvement. You know, I lived downtown for 20 years. I still own a house there, kind of between Wells Park and Martinez Town. Um, and I know that people probably drive through my neighborhood on my block and say, "Man, I wish they gentrify this." <laughs> you know, I think um, to outsiders, it probably looks like a neighborhood that needs um, development. So. You know, are we saying that gentrification is the problem here, or could um, economic development be done right? And what does that look like? We're not talking, at, what we're talking about is racial inequities. We're talking about a history of racism within planning and zoning in the United States, specifically being perpetuated in New Mexico and the city of Albuquerque. Now, I don't think anyone is against economic development. All of us have been wanting. It's about our communities um, from Wells Park to Martinez Town to San Jose to South Broadway are seeing the least amount of investment from an infrastructure perspective, right? And we're seeing the least amount of protections. Because if you look at the country club area, they're not going to be leaving near a Superfund site like I am in Wells Park because of the way that they're zoned. So it's about what communities are protected and what communities aren't, which ones get investments and which ones don't so that they can pursue economic development. And I'd like to say how crazy the city looks at things. You know, they came and said, well, we want walkability in your neighborhoods. We had walkability in Martinez Town. We didn't own cars. A few of us <laughs> owned them. And what they did was they widened Lomas. They opened up Odilio where homes were established there. And then we had grocery stores next to us. We had five. We named them by first name. And those owners lived in the right. neighborhood, so they were invested in that neighborhood. We would go to dance stores or to Manuez or to uh, uh, Archuletas uh, down on Mountain and Broadway to get whatever needs we needed, right? So how does it benefit us when you're talking about economic development? We want those little grocery stores that we can walk to. We want the barbershop, the hairstylist that we can walk to. So we're telling the mayor now, our neighborhood is saying, Mayor, we want to meet with you. We want that property on Lomas and Broadway, and we want to show you how to develop it so that it meets our needs. That's what we're seeing. Exactly. We have just one minute left, and, and I want to ask you guys, if there are people watching who are like, wow, this is the first I've heard of this, and, and I live there, and I want to get involved. Like, how do they connect with folks in their, in their neighborhood? If they're new or if they just haven't been paying attention, 
How do people find you? Connect with HNA uh, Historic Neighbors Alliance on Facebook. Um, we are currently looking for uh, donations for our legal suit with with the city at this point. Um, and I'll also say too, just just to get on this, close this point around what it looks like. Like we have to close the racial equity gap in our in our city in our state. And it means that we have to talk about more inclusive zoning and more inclusive economic development. And if we were to close that, we could actually see some serious economic outputs. So Michigan is trying to work on that. They look to obtain $92 billion in economic outputs by 2050. And $4 billion of that is going to be spent on housing. That's a lot of houses. And so if we were actually to look at that here and envision a, a more inclusive city, then we can actually see the same kind of economic outputs here in Albuquerque. I want to thank you all so much for being with us today to talk to thank us you. about this. Thank you. <laughs> we should mention Robert Nelson, who was part of that conversation about Albuquerque's zoning policies, is running for city council next week. We specifically invited him here to talk about zoning issues, though, and not his campaign. Time now to wrap things up for the week with our line panelists. The challenge is a big one for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, but it's not a new one. How do we as a state diversify our economy and protect our environment while also relying on all the money that comes from the oil and gas industry to our state? That tightrope is even narrower these days as we experience a new oil and gas boom in the Permian Basin, which is leading to record budget surpluses here. And those budget surpluses would help pay for some of her biggest initiatives, like the governor's plan to offer free tuition to almost all college students. And Laura, would you describe her approach so far as trying to thread a needle, more like trying to have her cake and eat it too? Or there's got to be some cliche here that's appropriate. I'm not quite sure what it is. But I, I, like I said, it's not new yeah. to try to make this balancing act. How's she doing on this so far? Well, I mean, it, it's new for her. I mean, yeah. she's in a new position. And so I think that um, I'm glad that any governor looks at this issue as, mm -hmm. as something that, that's important. Um, so we have to diversify our economy. It, we're completely dependent on right. oil and gas and extractive industries. And that means right. that when they're up, we're up. And when they're right. down, we're, you know, the state's right. down. That's and that's right. not good. So we have to figure out how to diversify. That being said, though, I mean, the oil and gas boom is real. It's, it's definitely having a huge impact mm -hmm. uh, to communities in southeast New Mexico, as well as the Farmington area. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also having some very real consequences. I mean, I used to travel down there quite a bit um, monthly. And uh, I would pay more for a hotel in Carlsbad than I would right, right now for a hotel in San Francisco. That's a problem, Think about that. um, yeah. especially for people who can't. I mean, the cost of living is so high because right. of this That's right. that a lot of people who just you know work at a hotel have to have multiple jobs to keep up. Mm -hmm. And so there's real consequences. Not everybody is um, is making money from the oil and gas boom. Mm -hmm. Now, local communities um, tend to be a little bit more flush if they're responsible with their budgeting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for the governor's office, it's definitely a challenge that it's an important one to, to address. It's a, an important one to, to have a conversation on. Mm -hmm. I'm a little skeptical about whether anything can happen in this next session because it's um, it's just such a huge issue. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But I also think that the tuition, uh, the free tuition issue is is an interesting one because while you know, we all support education, mm -hmm. um, there's definitely a segment of the population that doesn't feel like it should be tied to oil and gas. Right. And there's something that just sort of doesn't make sense. I'm going to ask Tom to pick up on that. That's an interesting point Laura just made that a lot of younger people, students, are feeling like that's not quite the way to get free tuition because that's not free. They consider that not free money, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, in one of the pre-reads that we had before uh, t today's episode, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was NBC News had an article that raised the question of, you know, it's an enormous uh, moral question. Uh, you know, does, you know, having free tuition at the expense of what some would think of the environment uh, justify that free education? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, th those are things people definitely need to weigh. I think the other thing that uh, the industry itself, as far, the, as far as oil and gas needs to weigh, is how do they bridge that gap of relevancy outside of the energy producing areas? Mm. Uh, because that's probably the biggest challenge that they have right now is creating that relevancy in northern New Mexico, in the Albuquerque mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, they are, you know, really creating these huge, um, you know, well, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous economic impact. And is it short-lived? Is it long-lived? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, how do you create that relevancy with, from the industry with New Mexico residents? And I think that's the biggest challenge the oil and gas industry has right now. Interesting point there. You know, Julianne, uh, the governor recently spoke at a conference for the oil and gas leaders in you know, there were a lot of niceties put out there. She wants to work with the industry on some things. But there are some challenges, particularly on the environmental side, which the governor has been very strong on, and particularly fracking and how we get, you know, 
some, some handle on this. Again, the threading of the needle thing here. Can she actually talk with these people and come to some kind of middle ground? She's got an odd balance that yeah. she needs to keep here, you know. And I think that the um, the forward-looking thought here that that many people are trying to keep in mind is, you know, while we have this money, while we're in the boom, mm -hmm. what can we do to reduce dependence on it? in the future. Mm. You know, the word diversify um, is one that comes up a lot, you know, but this idea that um, how do we take the big activity that's happening now and how do we leverage it, you know, for the future? I think another issue that's really important that maybe doesn't get as much play right now is the issue of accountability within mm -hmm. New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, not only are we dealing with trying to get some responsibility from the extractive industries on methane capture, um, but we're dealing with, um, you know, on the, the oil extraction side, um, our oil and gas conservation division has not been able to um, have very much teeth in its regulations. They haven't really been able to hold the industry um, as accountable as I think a lot of people would like to see. Certainly not as accountable as the environmental advocates would like to see. Mm -hmm. And so how do we spend the money as a state? Um, how do we regulate this industry moving forward in a way that seems like it's going to create the best future mm -hmm. for for those kids that are going to get free college from oil and gas? Mm -hmm. I think that's the big question. Mm. You know, Julian mentioned that the administration here is at odds with the, the federal administration about methane gas rules, the fracking thing. I mean, these are big issues, Michael. <laughs> huge, huge, huge issues. But the governor on her side fairly has, on her side of the, uh, the deal, she has the research uh, available. She has R&D available. She could meet industry halfway here, it seems to me, especially on the fracking produced water thing to say, how do we deal with this and spin this water? There's a lot of pushback on that, but you know, there's got to be a tech solution she could help bring to the table here, it would seem to me. Well, I'm going to start with a comment that Tom made that, mm -hmm. first of all, nothing is free. Right. There's, there's a cost to everything you do. Is that what the students need to hear? Well, there's no free money out well, there. Well, I, I think we all need to remember right. that, not just as students, but nothing right. is really free. There are costs associated with everything, every decision. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is who benefits and, and, and at what cost? Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to read something just to offer a mm -hmm. little p perspective. The University of New Mexico research at Good UNM finds uranium in women and babies. Federally funded research from the University of New Mexico recently found that more than 25% of adult female study participants plus some infants have radioactive uranium present in their bodies. For decades, uranium ore was harvested from Navajo lands leading to even more decades of pain and illness. Mm -hmm. There are consequences, and I'm not saying this is, fracking is the same thing. Mm -hmm. But what, I'm what I would say is that we need to recognize, again, that, um, that there is a cost and a benefit. And, and we need to be uh, real, demonstrate some wisdom mm -hmm. in, in terms of recognizing that we are in a desert state um, and uh, water is precious. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, given global warming that is occurring, it, 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 what, from what I've seen in some of the studies about New Mexico, it's only going to get worse right. here in New Mexico. Right. So I think we really need to uh, have a conversation. It's, 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 it's more than just who. It's more than just dollars and cents. It's more. It's, it's really about um, um, being good stewards for the land mm -hmm. and 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 the resources we have, as well as as really um, trying to figure out what is in the best interest of the citizens of the state of New Mexico for the long term, not just the short term. That's right. The short term's easy. That's right. That gets to Julianne's point about the money, take the money as we have it, Laura, and just use it to spin into something else, some new world. But I want to say on this produced water thing here for a quick second, because our environment department, New Mexico Environment Department, has announced actually just last week they want to start seeing some activity on this. And I know Los Alamos had some activity a few years ago about how to, how to re-spin uh, produced water from fracking. But a lot of farmers don't want anything to do with mm. this. Mm -hmm. They consider it to be ruinous for Albuquerque, for, I'm sorry, for New Mexico's reputation mm -hmm. if we're using produced water to grow crops. Okay. So you see the dilemma here? We need some kind of big fix here in order for industry to get their needs met and for environmentalists to get their needs met as well. It's a tough, tough play here. It is. I mean, mm -hmm. this issue is, um, it's not new. I mean, this is something that's been happening for a long time. Right. But I think that um, there's a recognition that there's more urgency. I mean, that's we're right. definitely not 
you know, we're a dry state, we have um, water table issues mm -hmm. where, you know, it's always going to be a problem. And so um, there is, a, I think, a desire to try to come up with some solution there. Mm -hmm. But I understand what the farmers are talking about. Mm -hmm. and, you know, back to what, uh, what Michael was saying. Um, we don't know what the effects are long term of that, that's and right. um, and you know even though you may have a technology that says you know this is what it's it, it's safe that's right. you can use it that's right you really don't know until you've had generations and we've had quotes from the is. environment department saying they want science to lead the way here not Which not is the folklore right thing. exactly yeah. right that's all the time we have for this week thank you all for your research and thoughtful opinions certainly and don't forget you can find out more about our panelists each week and get behind the scenes access by checking out our new Instagram page. Just search for NM in focus. Thanks again for joining us. And for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.